Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. I want to mention tonight, uh, as I usually do at the end of the month, this practice we do at the center we call Donna, the Pali word for generosity. But it's uh, more than just about supporting the center. It's really a, a practice that we try to cultivate throughout our days, our lives, where we basically transforming all of our relationships into the relationship of giving and receiving freely. And so, you know, to whatever degree you have a relationship with the center, it's just the place to practice that. So whenever you come to the center, just notice and reflect on the free giving of the community, the teaching, the building. And just reflect on how that feels to be receiving freely. Let it touch our hearts. Feel moved by it. In just ordinary ways. And then, Instead of giving because, well, I took a class, I should really give something back, you know, and all the other ways that we respond, we're trying to let it be more of a natural movement. So we receive freely, and then we just basically we're waiting for the heart to respond, however it does. And it may respond by putting money in the donation bowl on your way out, or you may respond by volunteering, or your response may not have anything to do with common ground. You feel moved by these teachings or this place, the community, and maybe you're a sweeter partner when you go home tonight, or you practice sincerely tomorrow morning. So there, the whole idea is to transform our whole life, and your relationship with common ground is, you know, just a place where hopefully this practice of giving and receiving freely gets, you know, we're reminded of it. It's a real radical change because normally the way we are in the world, it's a business-like relationship that we have with our partners, our families, our jobs, our communities. I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me. And there's a lot of built-in fear and basic tightness in those relationships. Always looking like, am I getting a good deal with this person, with my work, with my community? You know, do I pay more taxes than I get? You know, why not every month when we look, you know, if you have a paycheck and you look at it at the end of the month and you see that, you know, whatever, 25% is gone to the government, why not allow that to be a free giving, not a reluctant, you know, or stealing. <laughs> They're stealing from me. They're like... Uh, you know, um, we may not agree with everything they do with the funds, but we probably agree with some of the things they do with the money. You know, supporting other people who have needs, building roads or whatever. And we just see, okay, you know, if I really cared, I could always run for office, but I'm not. I'm actually grateful there are people who are willing to run the society because I'm not willing to do it. And I, however much I may disagree with what they do, at least they're doing some things right. So I freely give this money, even though they would throw me in jail if I didn't. I'm not, I'm not focusing on that. I'm focusing on the free giving. So this money, I give it away. 
And even in our business relationships where we go and purchase something, we could see that as a free giving and a free receiving too. And it really just changes how we are in the world. Like when we're smiling at somebody or talking with somebody, that can be a free giving. Or listening to somebody can be a free giving. Or when we're receiving somebody's support or their love, their patience, their listening to us, we can receive that. So it's just about transforming. And then pomegranate, it happens to work pretty well in terms of paying off the building that we purchased in 2006 and renovating and doing all the things we did. You know, I don't know how much it is now, but it's not that far away from the million dollars that we've spent on this building. We only have $30,000 left in our mortgage. We'll probably be paid off pretty soon. That's pretty amazing. All through this free giving. And then we have an office staff, Shelley, who works 20 hours a week now, and Debbie, our bookkeeper, works six or eight hours a week, and I guess I work full-time at the center. So all of that gets supported, besides all the other things, you know, like the electric bills and the water and things like that. All happen because of people's free gifts. So just, uh, there's no right or wrong way to do it. You don't have to contribute each time. The whole point is not to have a plan, but just to reflect on how, what would make you happy? What way of contributing or being connected makes you happy? What way of receiving leads to you feeling good about your relationship with the center and with the community? Every time you use the toilet and you walk into those nice bathrooms, you can think of this came to be because of countless community members who had donated the money and laid the tile and cleaned it and put the toilet paper in the rolls. And Well, how nice is that? All of it freely given. And, the, and then these teachings, of course, have been passed down for generations. Men and women doing a practice, having some understanding, some profound understanding, some people not so profound, but enough to share what they've learned and pass it on one generation after another. And then 2,600 years later, it ends up at a corner in Minneapolis, and we can benefit from these teachings. All of this, in this tradition, you know, is really about generosity. There's never been monasteries, as much as I know of at least, that charge for any of these teachings. And so Common Ground is a lay organization, and we're not a monastic-based organization. We try to follow some of the values of the monastic tradition, where things were freely given, freely received. The lay people would feed the monks and nuns, and the monks and nuns would share the fruit of their practice with people. So if you have any specific questions about that, you can always talk with me. There's some information at the website. Uh, there's a sheet off out by the donation board where you can get some more information. So just let us know if you have any more specific questions about how to get involved. And tonight we're starting a new chapter in Jack Hornfield's book. Some of you are following along. We're getting close to the end, two chapters left. This is a beautiful chapter on the middle way, chapter 23. And uh, this is a central teaching from the Buddha. Some of you know this story, but uh, for those who don't, I'll just relay it shortly, briefly. But uh, the Buddha, before he had his deep insight, was practicing. And uh, asceticism was a big deal at that time in India. So he got involved with ascetic practices, fasting, all their 
other kinds of renunciation, very extreme forms of renunciation. And he was practicing with a few other people, and it occurred to him, after a lot of extreme asceticism, that maybe this wasn't the way. The idea, and we can all relate to this, the idea of asceticism, asceticism makes sense, sort of, right? The more we see clearly the nature of the world, and we see the limitations of striving to have wealth, striving to have people love us, striving to have a beautiful body, striving to live forever, the more we really get the limitations of all that, the world can seem a bit oppressive, and it's easy at that point somehow think that asceticism is the way. Asceticism really is like I'm rejecting the world. So it's a relatively easy insight to have to see that the world is limited. Sense experience is limited. Nothing lasts very long in the big sense. But it's easy then to swing over to asceticism where I'll forget it then. You know, and the, the extreme form of asceticism is to kill yourself, basically, or forget this life. And the Buddha, through his own direct experience, realized the limitations of asceticism. So he left these guys because they thought he had gone weak. And very shortly after eating normal, healthy food, his mind and body came back into balance. And a lot of resolve developed, a lot of clarity developed, and very shortly he had a, a powerful insight which changed his life, and 2,500 years later, changing our lives. And he, after his insight, he decided, well, now I should see if I can share what I've come to understand. So he thought about who he might talk to first, and it occurred to him to track down these five friends that he had been practicing these ascetic practices with. So he eventually found them, and uh, what is now Varanasi, outside of Varanasi uh, in India, tracked him down. And at first they didn't want to listen to him, but as they saw him approach, they noticed that he looked pretty radiant and relaxed and happy. And they thought, well, let's see what he has to say. And the Buddha approached them, and he gave this famous talk. It's called Setting the Wheel of Dhamma in Motion. That's the name of the talk. And the idea is that not only did somebody have a deep, transforming insight, but they were able to articulate their insight, what happened, what they came to understand, in a way that other people could have that same insight. And that's what happened with the talk. By the end of the talk, one of those five people that he had been practicing with had the same insight, understood what the Buddha had seen, and had the same freedom that the Buddha experienced with his insight. So the, it's interesting, this is an interesting talk to take a look at. So what did the Buddha say to these guys? Well, the first thing he said is there's a middle way between indulging in sense experience, living our lives as if any sense experience is going to really provide lasting happiness. So he's saying that's limited. And there's a middle way between that and living our lives as if the world is bad and should be rejected, that it's inherently bad. Just because eating healthy food doesn't lead to any lasting happiness doesn't mean we shouldn't eat healthy food or have a good shelter or have good friends. 
or have basic comforts in life, right? So, thinking that the basic comforts of life are going to be a last, uh, the source of a lasting happiness is ignorance. Rejecting them is also ignorance. This is how he began the talk. There's a middle way between directing your life in this direction towards sense experiences as some lasting end, or directing your life towards rejecting life, which a lot of us do. You know, a lot of what, a lot of addictive behaviors like drinking a lot, watching a lot of TV, talking a lot, sleeping a lot. They're basic ways of cutting ourselves off from life. They're a kind of death. You know, it's not a suicide. But in a way, it's like closing down. Everybody in this room, we all have our own particular way of shutting down, whatever it might be. You know, even hobbies can be ways of shutting down. Because we get absorbed in this, because we don't want to deal with life. Just different ways we disappear. So that's this end of the equation, like just not wanting to have to deal with life. Wanting to deal with life, wanting to get, put it, fix it, make it just right so I'll be happy. That's delusion or ignorance. Giving up on life is ignorance. There's a middle way. And so the Buddha taught this middle way, and that's really what this chapter that Jack Hartfield wrote is about, his own sort of reflections on this teaching. So then the Buddha goes on in this first talk he gave, to talk about the Four Noble Truths. Not as a philosophical statement, but as a moment-to-moment -moment reflection. So we're saying, well, what's the middle way? If we're not living in this moment to get a good experience, like even when we adjust our body, almost always that's about like, if I just get my posture together, then I'll be happy. Well, has anybody ever gotten to that place? No, you're happy for a little bit, and then you got to move your body again. Or you got to sit with the pain. So the Buddha says, well, there's a middle way. And the middle way is this ongoing reflection where the heart, the mind recognizes there is stress. In this moment, there is stress. And even in, this is true even in very pleasant moments, when everything is just right, the mind on some level, even if it's unconscious, understands it won't always be this way. So let's say you have a really nice house and a really good relationship with your friends and partner or whatever fits. You're healthy, you're intelligent, you have a job or some source of income. You live in a perfect city like Minneapolis. No problems, right? You have that ideal life. But how, how could we not know on some level that it won't always be this way? It will change. Nothing is certain. And we don't know when it's going to change. And whatever the conditions that are ultimately going to lead to a changing, they're already in motion. For example, our death is already in motion. The illness, whatever that is for us, it's already in motion. The difficulty in our relationships, they're already in motion. <coughs> the underlying tendencies in our mind, the underlying tendencies in our friend's mind, our partner's mind, all of this stuff is already in motion. So we reflect, the Buddha says, reflect on this truth right now, not theoretically, but reflect on any resistance, any blocking off, like the mind 
being interested in seeing this, but not that, to closing ourselves off from the moment. Any kind of dukkha, suffering, stress, weight, be interested in that and understand that if there is stress or weight, oppressive feeling in the heart, in the mind, in the body, then its cause is also right here. That's the second noble truth. So there is stress. The cause is always here. Get interested in that. When the cause is seen and abandoned, then there is the cessation of that very same stress or dukkha. And in, the, in that moment of release, the heart not grasping, then we understand the way, like how, what our life is about. Oh, so instead of our life being about getting really nice sense experiences, I mean, think about how, even in a room like this, where we're all, you know, pretty reflective, think about how much of our time is spent thinking about nice vacations or nice relationships or nice experiences that would really sort of we like put on our mantle. I did this. I am this. This is what we mean by such experiences. So instead of putting our energy here, we're putting all our energy into understanding. This life here involves stress. The cause of that stress is right here in the mind, in the heart. It's about the way the mind is grasping or resisting or struggling right now. And when that is abandoned, then there is the freedom of that non-grasping, that non-clinging mind. And out of that non-grasping, the freedom, we get clear about, oh, this is what I should do with this life. Not get stuff, not reject stuff. I should cultivate this way of being, this way of not clinging to anything, not grasping. It's what sets our life free to be a beautiful, loving, engaged, wise human being. It's really the image I like best, and it may not work for you, but the image I like best is the image of nature. It's like this freedom, or in Buddhism, Nibbana, the unconditioned, the mind free of grasping, is a force of nature. Like you know, when a weather system blows in, you know, sometimes in the summer we get those really southern heads blowing in. And you just see this force of nature. It's amazing, especially if you've got that open horizon. You can really see it moving in. And the different textures of the cloud and the way the humidity changes and the wind. And the, even, you know, I don't know if we can, but it seems like we can almost sense the barometric pressure changing as the whole thing blows in and the sounds and the smells change. That whole thing whirls and curls and then, of course, moves on. And it packs a real punch, it certainly can, right? And that force of nature has its own sort of intelligence. It's its own, you know, unfolding of conditions that make it up. Well, how is that different than the human heart, mind, body? You know, we're as much of a force of nature as a storm blowing in, or a season changing, or a planet zooming to the solar system. The difference is we have a mind, a complicated mind, this language that can construct a sense of separation, 
conceptually, we construct a sense of separation. And with that sense of separation and the sense of what we want, or the sense of being exhausted by wanting, you know, that's the two sides that we generally flip between, we suffer, right? We create our own suffering, always here and now. Now, it doesn't seem that way. It seems that the suffering is coming from the outside, too humid. Our politicians are too corrupt, or whatever. We always feel like it's from the outside. Our partner doesn't love us in the way we want to be loved. I don't have a partner. I don't have a job. I have a job, and I'm not making enough money. I have a lot of money, but it's all disappearing because I don't know what to do with it, to invest it. I mean, it always feels like it's out there. Even sometimes our mind betrays us, but we always feel like it's like the conditioning that I got from my parents or this mind or this body out here that's betraying me. So here we're understanding that it's all right here in the mind, in the heart. It's the heart that clings that creates the problem. What's actually the problem of being a human being? And let's say, let's say like a typical tragedy would be getting cancer and dying. So we just take something really provocative. So we're that person, you know, and we're young. We're not, old people are supposed to get sick and die, but not somebody my age. And then we find out we have cancer, and then we find out we're out of treatment options, and then we start going through the dying process. Now you can see how a mind that's conditioned like our mind could make a very big story out of that. Likely would, right? And I'm, I'm hoping that a lot of us have been around people in that position because we learn a lot being around people like that. A very important part of life, obviously. It's as important as the birth, which we tend to celebrate. So there we are. Now, why, why does the mind create a story that causes itself suffering? Like, it's not fair that I'm dying at a young age. I mean, it's just a very obvious story that if somebody in that situation would have. But believing that story, being identified with the content of that story, would involve a lot of suffering because we can't have that story in the mind without the feeling that makes the story make sense. So if we feel betrayed by our cancer, for example, then the mind constructs the feeling of betrayal. You know, and then the body reflects that, so the body gets tight too. And we suffer because of that. So that's just an example. Now, nature sometimes is short-lived and sometimes it's long-lived and sometimes it has this expression and sometimes it has that expression. Just like the weather, you know, it has so many infinite ways of expressing itself. Same with human life. Some lives express themselves this way or that way. We could spend our whole life not wanting this life to be expressing itself the way that it's expressing itself, not wanting the body that it is, not wanting the mind the way that it is, not wanting the life situation to be the way that it is. And we create a lot of suffering because of that unwillingness 
to be this life that's being lived now. Now remember, part of the life that's being lived now is engaging the life. So it's not like we're not doing things. There's no way to not do things. Like a lot of people throw that in that, uh, well, this middle way would be about not doing anything. That there's no way to not do anything. Sitting on a couch is doing something. <laughs> you know, lying in bed is just an act, as much of an active statement as running for president. You know, it takes as much resolve to stay in bed as it was to sort of run for president. I mean, you might think initially it might be easier, but try doing it for a while. It's really about this inner view or understanding. And I, I just suggest you start to experiment. Don't necessarily think it's wrong or that it's true, but just experiment. Like now or tomorrow morning, just say, okay, I'm going to go through the day as a force of nature. And then the next day, go, I'm going to go through the day as if I have to do everything that I do. I have to make every choice, every step that I take, I have to take, I actually have to lift my leg up. My leg weighs, you know, 25 pounds. I have to lift it up, I have to move, I have to put it down. You know, can you imagine how unbearable our life would be if we thought we had to do everything that we do? You know, even our thought, like imagine if we thought, I have to think this thought now. It would just get so cumbersome, so oppressive. Fortunately, it's just not the case. Every once in a while, we project on our life experience that we're doing everything. And then we get the commensurate feeling that I'm doing everything. But we can cultivate a different view. It's another conceptual map, but it's a very useful map or view, which is we're not doing anything. It's all happening. And yet, sometimes what's happening is the neurotic personality, the really self-centered personality. And then what do we do about it? We only do two things that I mentioned in the guided sit. We practice seeing clearly. This is how it is now. So when the neurotic conditioning, habit energy is acting itself off, then we see clearly this is how it is. And then the second is we allow things to be the way that they are. Now, allowing things to be the way that they are doesn't mean we continue to be unskillful when we're being unskillful. It means that we're emphasizing the seeing things clearly and letting, acknowledging that right now this is how it is. So being at ease. Being at ease that right now this is how it is does not keep me from doing anything in this moment. It just means that right now this is how it is. And so I'm going to be really relaxed in this moment. And if in the next moment I'm responding, then I'm going to be really at ease with that response, whatever that might be. Not preventing the response, not resisting the response. So being at ease means being at ease when we're standing up in front of a crowd and saying, this has to stop. And being at ease means that when we're sitting back and observing, we're letting that be. So whether we're making a forceful, assertive movement into life or relaxing and being still, we're being at ease with that moment as it is. Clearly seeing and being at ease. This is the middle way. Instead of being the person who has to do things or being the person who's exhausted and gives up and doesn't want to do anything anymore, 
Those are the other two views. So that means all we have to do is watch three views. The view of when we're the person who wants, personally, wants to, you know, what is that statement? Pick ourselves up by the bootstrap. Put our lives together, make things happen, finish my novel. <laughs> Dan is a friend. She's been working on a novel for how many years? <laughs> she doesn't want you to know. Sorry. <laughs> Some, somebody probably in the audience is writing a novel and has been doing it for a long time. And it's like, if we feel, oh, i got to think about how to end this thing, it can be unbearable. But, it, but otherwise we can imagine, well, there is this novel. You know, I know it's there. There's a file right there in the computer. It will be interesting to see if it ever gets done. It will be interesting to see if the, if the amazing coming together of causes and conditions, the right motivation, the right inspiration, the time, the health, all of those factors come together, the computer works, that it gets done or not. And just to be kind of like have that attitude about our life, like what is going to unfold in this life, in our friends' lives, we don't know. And that really brings on this sense of amazement. It really supports that clarity because we're interested. And then the thing that supports the ease is we get tortured every time we're not just acknowledging that, that capacity we have to let things be, that this is how it is now. Because whenever we fall into the I should do it or giving up, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to engage, I'm not going to live this life, it hurts. Both of these two views really hurt. Now, generally, we get so absorbed in them, we don't notice that they hurt until later. And that's why we tend to flip back and forth between them. It's like we dig, 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 dig. And then eventually it occurs to us how painful it is to be struggling with life. And then we flip over here to giving up. And initially, we don't notice how painful that view is. Like, that rejection of life is painful. It's as much work as struggling with life to make things happen. But eventually, the weight of that giving up, rejecting, hiding, denying, it occurs to us that we, we re-inspire ourselves to dig in. And we even use language like this. You know, I'm going to dig in. I'm ready to go. I remember one of my first extreme existential crises uh, at the end of my freshman year in college, and I had gone to an all-male boarding school for high school. And uh, it was in the country. It was beautiful. I had a good experience. It was sort of a quirky set of circumstances that I ended up at a place like that. I grew up in a very middle-class family in North Minneapolis. But the Star Tribune uh, had a scholarship service, and I happened to, through a weird set of circumstances, I was a paper boy got a scholarship to go to this prep school. But anyway, then I went to college, and uh, it was too like There were women, for one. <laughs> and, you know, it's like this big opening in many ways. And I just sort of, uh, in, in some ways, ate it up, and in other ways got completely thrown around by that experience. And all of a sudden, the year was over, and my flight home uh, from college was a little later than most people. So there I was on campus sort of wandering around, all my friends were gone, and all of a sudden I felt, for the first time I think, the sort of repercussions for my frenzy of the last nine months, just the sort of crazed 
behavior of wanting to be liked and wanting to be successful and, you know, all the things that at least were in my mind at the time. And, uh, you know, so much of what's going through our minds when we're young like that is like, who am I? And we try out different people that we're going to be, you know, different personalities. And, uh, but anyway, I had this, you know, I, I was always a pretty sensitive person, and there it was, and all I, all I had was the residual of all of that, you know, and it wasn't pleasant, let me tell you. It was really unpleasant. But I had enough wherewithal just to stay with it for a while, all the way for a couple of days at least. And then here's the funny piece about that, the reason I'm bringing it up, is after several days of just really just feeling that existential pain, and uh, it kind of disgust, like just the memories of my year was disgusting, like all of that neediness. You know, and it wasn't, I was a pretty, you know, normal person, so it wasn't like uh, my behavior would have stood out. But just, I felt kind of more deeply the, the neurotic qualities behind it, the neediness, the fear, the endless, you know, the bottomless need of wanting to be liked, needing to be cool, needing to be successful. I just kind of felt, saw that for a while. But the only insight, the only kind of clarity I could get, and this sort of, so this is over here, right? Just like not, not wanting any of that, being so disgusted, wanting it, wanting out, basically. But after being here for a while, several days, the only clarity I could have is, like, I just got to go do it better. <laughs> and so for the rest of the summer, and I had to work a lot, uh, you know, I didn't have much money, my family didn't have that much money, so I had like three jobs every summer, kind of filling my time with these working, working, but all, they were all menial jobs, so I could think, right? And what did I think about, like, how I'm going to do it better, who I'm going to be, how I'm going to be that person. All summer long, thinking, oh, I'll figure it out. Oh, I know. And it was all this becoming energy. So I had flipped over here, had that, pitched that for a while, and then just flipped back here. And of course, there are many of these. And I think it's the scene of this over and over again that really made me write for these teachings of the Buddha. We get interested, well, what? Is there another way besides rejecting life and being crazed about life. Is there another way? And it is this inner reflecting. And remember, this inner reflecting doesn't depend on us being in a cave. It's very useful to sit every day, 30 minutes, two hours. It's very useful to go away on retreats every year, at least once, if you can. But mostly where we're going to do this work, even if you are able to sit every day and are able to go on retreats, you're going to do most of your work in the world, where you're going to notice the pain of grasping, notice the pain of rejecting, and wonder, is there another way? You remember, oh yeah, the Buddha taught about this inner reflecting we can do. There is dukkha, the cause is right here, where is that cause? If my heart is feeling oppressed, that means my mind is doing something right now. And if, it, if the mind sees clearly what it's doing, it will let go of that doing automatically. That's a natural effect of seeing it clearly. 
And if it lets go of that doing, that grasping, there will be the experience of non-grasping. This is the freedom the Buddha understood. The freedom of the heart or mind that isn't grasping anything, isn't clinging to anything. It's a force of nature now. It doesn't have a center. When there's no grasping in the mind, then there's no center to our life in, in the best sense of the word. You know, when there's a center to our life, there's a sense of separation. As soon as we have a sense of being something with a center, I'm here, then there's this dualistic world and there's suffering unavoidably. But when we discover this middle way of not grasping and not rejecting, then there's no center. So there's just the movement of nature, this interdependent, centerless movement of nature. That can be directly experienced by the heart, by the mind. Everybody in this room has experienced moments of this already. Now it's just a question of being very clear when these moments are happening. Just like we want to be clear when we're grasping and clear when we're rejecting, it's not necessarily pleasant to see that clearly, but it's essential that we see this clearly. And it's also essential that we see the middle clearly. Like really, like we don't see the third noble truth, the cessation of dukkha, cessation of suffering, unless we see it clearly. The mind has to be balanced when there's no grasping. It has to see the non-grasping with real clarity to really get, oh, this is the way. It's like a, it will rock your world the first time you see this. Because you'll get, this is the way, this is what this life is about. It's about living a life of non-grasping. And that whatever we do, whatever sort of uh, after that, we're inspired to gather around us things that remind us about this so we don't forget it. That's why people become a little, initially a little fanatical. I've got to sit every day. It's not that it's dangerous not to sit a day, but what's dangerous is to forget that there is this middle way. Because we have so much mental conditioning to go back into thinking, if only, if only I could have this, it'd be so much better. If only I could get rid of, you know, if only I didn't have to work. So this is uh, the key is that we remember this middle way and use our whole life, our sitting practice and the rest of our life to practice this middle way. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to hear from people. We have a few minutes. I just want to share a line from uh, one of the Buddhist saints talking about this middle way. He called it the complete, not complete, non-referential ease. Complete, non-referential ease. So non-referential means no center, right? So the ease doesn't have a location. It's the ease that we experience is precisely because there is no center, there is no reference point. It's just the life happening. There's no inner and outer. That's all things the self imposes, good and bad. So I'll leave it here. Thoughts, questions, experiences from your life you'd like to share with the group? Yeah, Jonathan. Um, I've been having some 
shocking mental paradigm shift where I'll like, you know, when I think of mindfulness, um, I think about being completely aware of what I'm doing while I'm doing it, and now you're lifting your leg each time, you're thinking about having to lift your leg each time, and I'm to think about this, because I started, I think I was start brushing my teeth the other day or something, and uh, I started thinking about mindfulness, Because a mirror reflects what's happening 
effortlessly. It doesn't take the mere any specific personal effort to reflect what's going on in front of it. And not only that, a, a really good mirror reflects it perfectly, reflects back what's happening perfectly. So this is an image for the mind that knows. The knowing mind, it knows what's happening right now in the moment effortlessly, perfectly, when it's unobscured. When it's unobstructed, that mind, that part of the mind just knows. So that's what you want to do, is you want to inspire self-life. Ask, like, ask yourself the question, what's being known now? Instead of saying to ourselves, I should be paying attention, I should be mindful, just ask yourself, well, what's the mind knowing now? Because by, you know, the mind is knowing something right now. So just notice that the mind is knowing instead of doing the knowing. Just notice that the mind is knowing and appreciate that. And notice that the mind can let go. It can let the knowing just be knowing. That's the letting go part. It's the easiest thing to do. Letting knowing just be knowing. And that's it. So then the personality has to be a force of nature because there's nobody driving it now. There's no part of the mind that's projecting itself that's responsible for choosing. Choosing is still happening. I'm going to sit on the couch and let life pass by. I'm going to stand up and get involved and do. All of that is still going to happen. But now the mind is simply aware that knowing is happening and it's letting everything else happen freely. And even if because of the force of habit there's a lot of unskillful choices being made, because the mind is knowing what's being known, it's going to learn that whatever the body-mind is doing is digging a deeper hole. You know, it's creating tension or causing problems. And it will naturally, that knowing what's being known feeds the whole natural system. Just like weather has feedback loops, you know, the hot air goes up and then the cold air rushes in, you know, so it's there's the whole thing. It's the same thing with seeing clearly or seeing what the mind is knowing, that that has an effect on who and what this natural process is. Yeah, thanks for asking that good question. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, say your name. And that's what our mind does, doesn't it? It's like we do have an experience and to some degree there's an awareness, but then the mind takes that moment of experience and it freezes it in terms of a concept. It's like we tell ourselves, tell ourselves what just happened. And then we're not alive in the moment anymore. We're kind of tied to that concept, that idea of what happened or the idea I have of who you are. Yeah, thanks, Emily. Yeah, it's just obscure. It doesn't go anywhere. It's just not... The mind isn't mindful of the knowing. It's forgetful. You remember mindfulness, in terms of etymology, it has to do with remembering. So, 
that's really the effort. You know, the effort of mindfulness is remembering that knowing is happening now. The mind is knowing. And so we forget that the mind is knowing because the ideas that the mind, that are moving through the mind, are so seductive that the mind becomes absorbed or fixated, like Emily was talking about, kind of grasps the idea, the image, and it proliferates that one moment of grasping or fixation, absorption, followed by another. And then in that absorption, it forgets that this is just being known. Our whole life, you know, it's like we have this whole idea of dimensions and my house over there and my grandma who lives there and, oh, the past and the future. and But actually, everything that we've ever experienced, will ever experience, everything right now, the whole world is just something being known. It's never more than that. Where is it being known? Here in the mind, right? That's it. The whole world, all we know is what we know here and now. So we get lost in these little bubbles. The only thing that brings wisdom into mind, the sort of prerequisite for wisdom in a Buddhist sense, is to know that this is being known. I know that sounds a little funny, but it's not enough because, you know, we're aware all the time, even when we're lost in our thoughts. In a sense, we're aware. Even when we're dreaming, we're aware. There's an awareness, a consciousness of the dream. But the missing piece, the thing that we're often forgetful of, is to know that something's being known. That's what we forget. So it's that, you know, it's funny they use this phrase in Buddhism, but that self-awareness or that awareness that this is being known. That's what comes and goes. And a more, uh, a person more caught by life doesn't have much of it. A wiser person has more of it. That's really the sort of spectrum. Yeah, myself. want to eradicate, what are the supporting causes for it? The most important supporting cause for that being there is the thought that it's real. Really you, you know, belongs to you. You wouldn't want to eradicate something that you didn't think was real, right? So the fact that you really want to eradicate it is very much tied with the thought or the uh, experience that it's very real. And so as long as you want to eradicate it, as long as you have the belief that this is something that needs to be eradicated, you can't really see it clearly because your view that it's real trumps your desire to see it clearly. You see what I'm saying? Because we think it should be eradicated, we're not going to let ourselves see it for what it actually is because we have uh, an arrogant belief that it's already real. We don't want anybody to challenge that. But if we really are want to be honest, then we can't have any pre-existing ideas about it. We just have to see it as it actually is. And we might discover when we see it as it actually is that there's nothing that needs to be eradicated. 
But you can't have that insight if you think that it needs to be eradicated. Right. Right, but we want to be skillful at it. <laughs> and what I'm saying is, the way you're skillful at eradicating what needs to be eradicated is to see it as it actually is. That part of what makes oppressive habits of mind oppressive is that we think that they're mine. I, like for example, speaking personally, I get defensive and fearful a lot of the time. And when I think that that fear and that defensiveness is me, and I have to get rid of it or fix it, it gets more and more entrenched. And when I create the space for that defensiveness and that fear to come and go, it's, it's less of a problem. And that is just, I guarantee that. I've seen that so much in my own life in so many different ways. I bet a number of you have also, that with, I can say with great confidence that this works. That hating the fear, hating the defensiveness, wanting to control it, is not the cause for it to diminish in the mind. It reinforces it. Yeah, Dan. Um, then, you know, the, uh, the nexus between um, knowing the present and the Well, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure I understand what, what you're asking, but one of my teachers said, it doesn't really matter what people ask, just answer what you want to answer. <laughs> you're not going to let me answer what I want to answer. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, here's, here's what I was going to say, and, and it sounds like it may be sort of what, what you are bringing up, which is that abruptness comes because uh, appropriately so, but ultimately not helpful, a fear comes into mind that I like a fear like I really want to be practicing and I'm not. So I want to go back to knowing. And, and what begins to change over time is that fear goes away. And so when the mind wakes up and it's been caught, it is caught, you know, trapped in some drama, self-drama, and it, now it's aware of it, it, now it's just interested. Because part of what the background of the mind becomes more and more with more practice is this, uh, this sort of background confidence that whatever it is, it can't be broken. Whatever goodness whatever freedom, whatever um, love, universal kind of love there is, there's just no way for anybody to break it. That's by definition. The freedom, the love, the goodness can't be broken. There's no thing that anybody can do 
that can somehow stain it. So one of the metaphors for Nibbana, for freedom, that's unstainable, it can't be harmed or broken or diminished in any way because it's the underlying nature of things. So that, as that confidence, that intuition just slowly deepens, then when we catch our mind in some neurotic place, even though we may be sort of unskillful, we're not afraid of it. And we'll just, and then, then that we get less of that lurching, best practice the one who practices, you know, as opposed to the one who's being bad and to the one who's being... But initially, there is a lot of that. I mean, I definitely saw a lot of that in my practice, and I've seen it diminish over the years. Um, this is my 30th practice anniversary. So, you know, and just being studied for that many years, putting in the time, studying, practicing every day almost, you know, it's just that kind of gradual effect. You know, and, and uh, I really appreciate being able to be a neurotic human being without it being such a weight and being afraid of it. Because I had a real perfectionist addiction for a long time that I'm going to let go of. And we need to let go of this. Our time is up, sir. Would you take a breath together? Appreciate being here. Letting go of the words. feeling inspired, motivated to practice in a way that leads to real freedom and peace, love, and wisdom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.